0: Welcome everybody to episode number 28 of the Godcast. Uh, This is the first season, or rather the second season, the first episode of our second season. Uh, This would be on the United Methodist Church. Uh, Joining with us is Pastor uh, Susan uh, Bogley, and we are incredibly excited to... uh uh, listen to what, what she has to say on the United Methodist Church. That being said, welcome to the Godcast. So basically um, we kind of ask uh, generally an introductory question as to like why did you decide to become a, a uh, someone of a uh, leadership position in said religion. So when did you decide to become a pastor in the United Methodist Church and why be a pastor as opposed to the role of a lay person or some other kind of role?
1: <laughs> oh my story is a long one. I had no intention on ever working for a church. I never went to church. Um, But I got what they call the call when I was in my 20s. Um, But I didn't ever read the Bible. I didn't go to church. So I had no idea what, you know, I almost didn't have any idea what seminary was. Um, I was a United Church of Christ person at that time. And and so I decided, "Mm, not going to do it yet. So I became an English teacher. For about ten years, and uh, but this thing about all I wanted to do is learn more about God. I had no intentions on ever, you know, working for a church. I just wanted to know about God. So uh, when I decided to go to seminary, I was uh, I was a uh, 30, 37, I think, um, and I did not get a master's of divinity, which is what you need for to become a pastor, I got a master's of theological studies because I just wanted to study about God. Um, but I uh, was recruited out to Salem, Oregon, to be a Christian educator for a large church, Methodist Church, and uh, in that process of, of being a, uh, working with the United Methodist Church, you can go the through ordination to be a deacon or you can go through ordination to be an elder. Uh, a deacon is very different in, for example, the Catholic Church or the Presbyterian Church or what, whatever. Both of these uh, tracts are for ordained people. Um, the Uh, order of elders uh, leads a church and the order of deacons is the bridge between the church and the community. So I had every intention of going the deacon route because I could be that bridge between the church and the the community through spiritual formation. Um, But we have what's called a Board of Ordained Ministry, and you're supposed to go through them, and it's a very long process. But they're they're very proud of their process because they were able to keep um, Jim Jones out of being a, a Methodist. So. They're glad about that. Anyway, the Board of Ordained Ministries kept saying to me, no, 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 you can't be a deacon. You're not right for a deacon. Don't be a deacon. You have to be an elder. And I'm like, I don't want to be an elder. I don't even like working for churches, and I have no idea about church. So how can I be an elder? And they said, no, 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 you have the gifts of an elder. You have to go this way. So I, like Job, I'm like, oh, all right, I guess I'll do it. Um, And, and that was a while ago, I was actually officially uh, ordained uh, as an elder in full connection in 2011.
0: Very fascinating. So it seems like obviously the people who you surrounded yourself with, they were the people who kind of said, uh, I see something in you, so therefore you should pursue this path that maybe you're not super comfortable taking at the time, but then um, through, through their, uh, um, through what they saw in you, you eventually decided to take that path. Yeah. Awesome. How, when, where, and why did Methodism begin, and who started it?
1: All right. Well, that is Wesley. Um, And he was John Wesley. He was... uh, 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 and, uh, not an Episcopal, uh, Anglican in the 1800s. And he really didn't like the whole hierarchy of church. He really didn't like the idea of, you know, all the rich people get to sit in these particular pews and, you know, the poor people, blah, blah, blah. And he didn't like the idea of the ministers being in these pulpits that were like way higher than the congregation. And, you know, that message of, of I'm holier than thou was, you know, baloney to him. So he's like, the world is my parish. So he went out and did his preaching and did his teaching and hoped that uh, people would find uh, God's love through his message and It just really took off. He had absolutely no intention of starting a new denomination. Jesus had absolutely no intention of starting Christianity. It's just how it worked. So um, United Methodists, the United Methodists only became United Methodists in the 60s. We have lots of branches. Every single social justice issue we divide and another uh, branch is formed, like the Nazarenes, like, believe it or not, uh, Salvation Army. Um, and we are up for a split again over the issue of homosexuality. Is that and, the. And gender identity.
0: Is that the a global Methodist Church?
1: Well, it's hard for me to say currently because there was um, just recently. A fraction of the United Methodist Church has officially left, but yes, before that happened, like two months ago, um, we were a global church, which is wonderful. We uh, we uh, are really uh, we built schools and hospitals all over the country because we're all about doing. And uh, but the problem with that, as time has gone on, is. I'm sure all of you understand that cultural differences are extreme. And it's very, very difficult to maintain a cohesive theology when, the, when you're dealing with such different cultures, and, which is creating a mammoth problem right now.
2: I'm sort of curious about where the Methodist Church stands um, like as for like social issues like gender identity and stuff like that. Um, like, Could you give us a, a summary about like, how, you, how you guys stand on those issues?
1: Okay, well, there is no you guys, because we are just all over the map. <laughs> so I, um, I went to, to seminary at Emory in Atlanta, Candler, Candler Seminary, and uh, that seminary is extremely liberal, and uh, it's kind of like a donut hole in the middle of the, the, the South southeast but this the methodism of the southeast are really a lot closer to baptists and the methodism out west are much closer to the uh, united church of christ so we have the the polarization of the denomination is nuts and um and that's what we are splitting over um it's The West Coast, the West Jurisdiction is what they call it, is um, what we call reconciling, a uh, open and affirming uh, congregation, whereas other parts in the uh, country are not. Um, So if you ask me where does the denomination stand, can't answer that hmm. question because even in Washington, you know, here at Mason, we might be very progressive in our theology. But if you go down the road, you know, it's it's very possible that you will come into a community that's much more conservative and not willing to be reconciling. So it's a bit of a mess. Hmm. Um,
2: and are there efforts trying to like mend the like the breaks, like trying to bring the church together again, or? Is it inevitable that there's going to be a split?
1: Well, this um, conversation has been going on since the 70s. And finally, after, what, 50 years, we've gotten to the place of, you know, this is not going to work. And, you know, sometimes you just have to accept that, you know, everything has a life. And, you know, the life of, you know, being united in a global way perhaps that's time to let go and make room for something new to come. So no, it's not just like, it's not just like, oh, you know, what do we do about you know the LGBTQ plus community? Um, it's been going on for a while and people are really sick and tired of talking about it. I could say this in a very crass way, but I'm, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs>
2: All right, so um, the United Methodist Church is the third largest Christian denomination in the United States and among the largest denominations in the world. How did this come about?
1: Service. Service. Hospitals and schools. Um, uh, Methodism was never interested in, you know, say, going to um, some regions in Africa and, quote, saving um, people that was never their intention is not their intention. Um, it's about serving people who are in need. So we have Methodist schools all over the world, all over the world. Methodist hospitals, all over the world, and that's really how we got our footing.
0: There are many church policies across various denominations. Oh, wait, oh, policies. Yeah, uh, pol. There is the episcopal, episcopal uh, polity with a well-defined hierarchy of deacons, in some cases, then elders, then bishops, and so forth. Whereas a presby- presby- presbyterian, presbyterian uh, pol- polity, for example, is strict flat with churches strict, strictly, fat. strictly fat, flat. Sorry, with uh, churches autonomously governing themselves. With that in mind, uh, how is the United Methodist Church governed from bottom to top?
1: So I just want to just say something that I should have said at the very beginning of this podcast. And this is just the perspective of Susan Bogley. This, I I cannot and will not um, say that I am speaking for the denomination as a whole. This is just how my mind wraps around. And there might be a lot of things that people will say, call me up and say, Susan, what were you talking about? Where did you get that? And I'll just say, well, I either made it up in my head or that's just how I understand it or blah, blah, blah. Okay. This is the best way that I understand it. And I was told, I don't know if it's true or not, but the um, Methodist Church that began in the United States was structuring itself at the same time as the United States was structuring itself. So that there's a lot of similarities. So if you look at the United Methodist Church as like, say, for example, regions and states and towns, that's that's much um the way it's it's structured so let's start from the local church the local church might be considered like a town or or um even a county no let's stick with town a town and you know a town might have its own ordinances and but basically they they work under the structure of of um well, equal to the United States. So then you look at districts. So, so the local church is part of a district. The district is, let's say it's a county. So the county has its own rules and, you know, not terribly different from everybody else, but it has its own kind of flavor, right? And then there's the annual conference. Think of the annual conference like a state. So, then we have, so it's a kind of hierarchy like that. Um, and then after the annual conference, we have jurisdictional conferences. And that's um, that's very regional. So there's like, for example, the Western jurisdiction, there's the Northeast jurisdiction, and you know, they're all different, there's all different uh, words for it. Um, so, and then, of course, there's a jurisdiction that uh, includes the rest of the world other than the United States.
0: Fascinating. Um, are, there, are there roles of like, um, you obviously talked about deacons, which is absolutely uh, fascinating. You talked about elders. Um, would a pastor be, be an elder who presides over the other elders? Is, is that kind of how the term pastor uh, fits into the... Uh... Well,
1: that can happen because um, a DS, a district superintendent, Who's in charge of the county? Call it the county, is an ordained elder. I mean, that's that's their role. And when they are done being a DS, and they can only um, be a DS for eight years, they go back into the local church. The bishops are are um, ordained elders. That's their title, and uh, that's what they are now. They retire as bishops. They're once a bishop, always a bishop. They never go back into the local church. Um, so, so yeah, uh, elders are really the uh, the leaders of the church. Deacons are more the leaders of um, connecting with the community.
0: So our next question would be like I'll preface it by saying obviously like in the early church um, under Paul you'll see for example um, this is um, for some people for some people this is controversial for me I just look at it as as facts but um, basically you'll see for example Junia who is mentioned uh, along with her husband Andronicus is uh, is mentioned as like first uh, among the apostles and that, that's what Paul explicitly says in Romans so basically this is obviously a woman in the role of apostle and then obviously as the church kind of um, uh, uh, um, expanded, uh, p- uh, people didn't want women in authority positions for some reason, but now um, that, that's starting to make a comeback. So why do, why is it that the United Methodist Church has been um, has has been um, kind of at the at the forefront of that comeback of putting uh, women in uh, positions of spiritual authority?
1: Well, I think that there's a misunderstanding that um, the letters in the uh, in the New Testament are all written by Paul. They're not. Yes. They are written by by. Paul's students, um, uh, they're it, it kind of like, you know, Plato wrote everything that Socrates said, you know, so he, he Plato came from the school of Socrates, so he's, he's writing what his teacher said. Yes. Well, that's the similar thing with Paul, you know, the people who followed Paul or believed Paul or were students of Paul would write. Um, under the name Paul, but it would be not the same. Um, so if you, if you look at, here's the thing. Um, I think that there's, there. okay, I like this quote by Marcus Borg. He says, we take the Bible very seriously, but never literally. So we're always looking for the spirit of scripture. It's very similar to looking at the Constitution. You know, progressives are looking for the spirit of the, the, what the founders were trying to say. And the conservatives are looking at the words and taking you know these things very literally. And that's the, that's the conflict between the spirit of the word or the literal interpretation of the wor- worl- word world word.
0: Yeah, I mean, and just talking about so how some of the letters were basically written in, in Paul's name, uh, likely by other students. Uh, for example, you'll have like Galatians, uh, Romans, Th- those are authentic Pauline letters that are for sure written by him. Uh, and then you'll have like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So these, there's even letters that don't currently exist. Um, like like for example, there's Laodiceans. He wrote to the church in Laodicea. We don't have the letter he wrote to Corinthians the, to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians. Um, not, but things like like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, um, though, those ones were written um, much later by, um, by people um, of his school. And then also there's a debate whether or not Colossians is actually written by him or written by someone of his school, and same with uh, Second Thessalonians. But I, I, just, I just wanted to point out how it was very interesting that basically in the early church under Paul, you had a woman uh, as an apostle, and then um, as time went on, that, that, that role became, well, the role of apostle kind of diminished, and also the role of women, um, unfortunately, diminished as well. But now that we are seeing kind of a comeback um, as, of, as of the 20th century... I don't center. know
1: if we have a comeback... First of all, we, we, then they, we lived in a patriarchal society, and guess what? We still do. And I mean, just look at what's happened recently, and you clearly can see that women do not have the rights that uh, that we um, we thought we had. Um, and, and so, you know, Paul might have been a very inclusive person, um, but he still lived in a society that was extremely patriarchal. And it's all about power, isn't it? And by the way, you have done your homework, and you <laughs> know a, a lot more than I do, and I'm going to have to go back and do some reading to make sure you're right, <laughs> but I'm sure you are. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but like like Paul Paul for his time, uh, it was in many ways very progressive. For example, you'll see um, the way that he's basically set up his church was, for example, you have Priscilla and Aquila, and Pr- um, Priscilla is the is the woman, and Aquila is the um, is the husband. But notice how it's how it's Priscilla then Aquila. So basically, what happens is whoever is doing the most good work for the community, they're going to be um, honored more than people who are who are. Um, I mean, obviously, everyone's. Uh, respected but basically it's that um priscilla in this relationship is the is the perhaps slightly better um a co-worker so and then also we understand in that dynamic um is that is that they're, they're a missionary couple but like um the, the the woman unlike in roman society is not the property of the man they're basically just like they're co-equals um and then obviously um uh, paul would allow uh, both men and women to uh, prophesy in his uh, churches so i, I think um in, ma- in many ways you could say at least in terms of gender paul was uh, significantly more uh, progressive than um and uh, some people in the uh, in, in in Judea and, and and certainly many people in the, the Roman Empire. So I thought that was interesting to point out.
1: It's just it contradicts. You know, the Scripture contradicts itself all over the place. It's just what it does because Scripture was written by human beings, and we're not perfect, are we? No one's perfect. So uh, yeah. So um, it is what it is, and you know um, the 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 inequality between genders is i'm afraid going to be something that is forever it's all about power and power isn't going to go anywhere so but we can keep doing the good fight right
0: yes most certainly um another question uh the fifth question here would be basically um um actually rather the sixth question would be like um uh, obviously um there's a lot, there's some uh, denominations where it's like super into obviously super into in, into works um, and there's obviously um a, like uh, this obviously, from what you've been saying so far, it sounds like the United Methodist Church is into, you know, education and hospitals and so forth. Whereas other denominations are more into um, uh, getting people "quote unquote" saved. Um, that would be obviously the more uh, the more conservative denominations. Whereas the more liberal denominations would be into uh, a more works based uh, kind of mission. So uh, that being said, um, according to uh, United Methodist uh, um, to, the, to the doctrine of the United Methodist Church, um, how is one saved? How is one not? And then um, how does one uh, know of their spiritual state?
1: Well first of all there these are loaded words. You know, people have tons of baggage around this kind of fo- vocabulary. Sure. And I'm really not interested in using that kind of vocabulary because if, you know, if someone who's never been to church before is in an elevator with me and I have 10 floors to describe what Christianity is about, I am not going to use any words that that person doesn't use out in the world. That would be exclusive, right? It it wouldn't be inclusive at all. The idea of salvation is one of those loaded words. Um, You know, the secular world hears that, and it makes them cringe. Um, Sin is another one. You know, there's just so many. Um, And so salvation is just one of those loaded words. So... If I am to describe that to somebody else, I would say something like, you know, being saved is all about being saved from yourself. You know, I mean, we are so hard on ourselves. And, you know, only by really, really, really getting down to the nitty gritty and understanding that, you know, God is a higher power who loves, period, loves. That's all God is, is love. And uh, when someone understands that they are really loved, they're saved from themselves. Um, As far as, you know, the afterlife and all that stuff, you know, my opinion is just uh, God is love. And when we shed this material body, we simply get absorbed back into this current of love and are just a part of it. Um, So, I actually had to do a memorial service um, on Sunday for someone who never went to church but was in AA. And I will tell you that the 12 steps of AA are probably more church than any church that I've ever been to. And if you haven't yet interviewed someone from AA, it is a faith community very much worth looking into and, and finding out how how, um, participants in AA, uh, would try to live their lives.
0: Well, it's very interesting how you're talking about, um, talking, talking about, you know, not being super preoccupied with the, with the concept of salvation, because obviously the, uh, well, the, the, the German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, when he was, uh, commentating on, uh, on Paul and Jesus, he basically, um, he wasn't a huge fan of Paul. Uh, he basically said that Paul, it, it appears that Paul kind of created the religion of, of, of Christianity with the concept of heaven as a, as a reward and then hell to punish your enemies. But basically, uh, um, Nietzsche commented on Jesus by saying that, that that Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within you so it's more of a mental state as opposed to a literal, um, kind of eternal political state that will uh, one day emerge in the in the future.
1: By the way, I just want to point out, in the Gospels you'll notice that uh, uh, Mark, Luke, and John always use the word kingdom of God Matthew's the only one who says kingdom of heaven and interesting. the only, oh, the reason why I've been told why that is is because um, uh, Matthew was extremely, extremely Jewish. Yes. And one of like the rules of Judaism is you do not say God. That's why they say Yahweh. It doesn't have any vowels in it. That's, um, but that's why uh, he did not define kingdom of God as kingdom of God, but he, kingdom of heaven. And I think that that's one of the places where we get all confused about heaven
0: and hell and all that stuff. Also, just to add one more piece of information to that. I was uh, I saw an excerpt of a video in which basically one of the two guys from the Bible Project, which is obviously an incredibly popular uh, program on YouTube, in which people basically uh, the two guys basically explain um, books in the Bible and as well as other uh, as well as theological concepts. But basically. What the what the guy said was that um, hell is, is a bit is essentially a state that you create for yourself. Um, it, it's not this idea that basically God will uh, you know burn you in hell or annihilate you if you don't um, accept the uh, the the sacrifice of, of Christ. It's more that um, hell is is something that you create um, in your own mind. And then heaven is. I don't know what his views on heaven are, but basically back to that idea of Nietzsche, um, the kingdom of God is this um, internal state that you uh, experience. Well,
1: um, I agree a hundred percent that uh, hell is on earth. Period and a discussion. I cannot fathom, if God is love, pure love, I cannot fathom that, um, that the afterlife would include torture or any of that baloney. I, I just, I can't. If that's what God does, I, I have, don't want anything at all to do with Christianity.
0: Uh, like the great um, New Testament scholar, he's especially good with textual criticism, uh, Bart Ehrman, basically pointed out that um, as as the church went along in history and it beca- had a less um, uh, sort of um, uh, imminent view of the second coming, it basically um, said, well, you know, because if, if, initially... Paul's understanding of heaven was was as was as, essentially as a storage place that souls would go to, and then eventually um, there there would be the kingdom on earth. Which of course you can interpret um, however you want, whether you want to take a literal approach or a figurative approach. But um, basically, this concept of heaven just kept continuing as this place where you'd um, you'd, uh, you'd you'd kind of await um, the kingdom of God to exist on earth. But as people became less and less um, imminent with their um, with the return of the Kingdom of God, or in terms, in terms of that thinking, they basically said, well, if if we're going to be um, with Jesus um, in, in heaven, um, awaiting the Kingdom of God, then um, then it, it kind of seems like the concept of hell, um, there there has to be kind of an opposite for that, for that, for like the wicked. But it seems like hell itself, this this eternal hell idea, is, is certainly not a, a biblical one. People have pointed out, um, even a very conservative uh, scholars have pointed out that the that 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 really just derives later from. Um, Potentially Neoplatonic thought, actually, but yeah.
1: Well, I do just want, as I'm listening to, to you talk, and clearly you're uh, very learned. I I do want to make the point that um, that certainty is a pro- is a problem. Yes. And um, and there are a lot of ways of understanding, you know, not just scripture, but our experience, uh, our theological experience. So, um. I I would I would just caution caution you not to um, assume that the uh, the scholarship is always correct. Um, There's questions. We we must question everything. And just because some it sounds really good and it makes sense, the truth is none of us know. You know, we're all just bozos on the bus trying to make our own way home. Right. So um, (laughs) that's uh, that's uh, it, it. one of the things that I do want to say about Methodism, and something that drew me to Methodism, is something called the Quadrilateral. And uh, it, no, it's not you know clearly a you know uh, equal thing. But basically, uh, John Wesley made the point of you know understanding our uh, our understanding of God and and our spiritual formation. Um, Uh, being developed, is we look at scripture, we look at tradition, we look at um, uh, reason, using our heads, and we look at experience. And those four things, those four things make up our understanding of uh, our higher power.
2: All right, so sort of shifting gears, um, are sacraments instituted in the United Methodist Church theology? Why or why not?
1: Yes, we have two sacraments, um, communion and baptism. Um, They are holy rituals that are called to um, bring us closer to God. Rituals are meant to educate us. Rituals are meant to remind us um, and you know the idea of baptism is extremely important to the United Methodist because it's about starting new, it's about um, being born again. I will tell you, see I have all these tattoos, right? I have these butterflies. Um, I was, uh, the idea of being born again is uh, five year, five and a half years ago um, I stood in the pulpit and said I can't do this, I'm gonna die, I am an alcoholic. So um, that took courage, because I had no idea what would happen. But I went to treatment, and when that happened, it was Easter, and at Easter, we celebrate new life. So I am committed to um, every year that I am sober, Having another uh, butterfly tattooed on, on my arm because it's reminding me that I live a new life, a life in Christ, and um, and uh, and so baptism for me is that it's it's a new life. One of the things that we're different from other denominations, um, probably, is that we only baptize once. Once baptized that's it. Um, But we do do uh, remember your baptism uh, uh, liturgy. Uh, Communion has so many different theological perspectives of why we do that. I can't even begin to talk to you about, you know, whether it's collective, whether it's personal, it's just, you know, the gamut. Um, But nevertheless, it is a ritual that is meant to remind us of who we are and whose we are.
2: Would you accept like let's say a catholic is converting to methodism and they've gotten first communion, they've been baptized. Would you honor their baptism? Yes.
1: I do I do have something that I do not really necessarily like but um, something uh, that that has been shared with me is unfortunately and it's not unfortunate. Um the United Methodists do not see uh, Latter-day Saints as Christians and um, and it's all around the Trinity and um, because of that uh, if uh, someone from the Mormon Church wants to belong to the United Methodist Church they would have to be baptized now whether you agree with that or not you know I, I can't say, but but that is just something that I understand. And I just want to say, all you United Methodists out there, if I'm screwing up, I am so sorry, but uh, this is just where my head's at. So, grace, grace, grace. That's what we're about. United Methodists, grace.
0: So, obviously, the doctrine of the Trinity, um, you, you said that that, that that is kind of a, a defining point for uh, um for Christianity, and then um, which then defines if you need to be uh, baptized um, to join the United Methodist Church. So, um, with the same kind of apply for Jehovah's Witnesses, who who also have a non-Trinitarian uh, view of the Godhead.
1: I can't speak to that.
0: Okay. Um. And then a question I wanted to ask. Um. Since we have do have a little bit more a little bit more time than I than I thought we would, but um, um, if that works for you. But um, we were obviously talking earlier, and you said that you have a Quran, which is obviously the uh, the uh, Islamic uh, holy book. So um. In your views of other religions, um, like just you personally, um, do you kind of view other religions as, as sort of feeding into Christianity, or is Christianity kind of one piece of the puzzle, uh, so to speak, and it's kind of like a tapestry of God's revelation to uh, to humanity?
1: Oh, I like the tapestry imagery. I I often use the idea of you know um, uh, taking a pilgrimage to the top of the summit of a mountain. There are so many different paths to get there. The goal is just to get there. It doesn't really matter how you get there. You know, some people want to rock climb up there, and some people want to take the easy way, and some people get lost. by Well, we all get lost. Um, but that's the analogy that I like to use. I, I It doesn't matter one iota to me um, what you call yourself or what tradition you study or or fall into. Um, What matters to me more than anything is if people are really sincerely trying to um, work their way towards being a part of perfect love.
0: Awesome. Um, are, are there any ways I'm um, just just kind of a follow-up question how, how you've like read a, a holy book of, of another uh, religion or um just just another religion in general and then, and then you found like that you by doing that you've you've been able to understand your own uh, faith better
1: well um when I started you know searching I was a Unitarian Universalist and interesting. I interesting I loved that, because I learned so much about all the different faiths of the world, and it was very broad, and it was very educational. And what it really taught me was that we're basically all the same. We just have different languages for what we're doing. But what I found is that the Unitarians are so broad in in their scope that you can't get deep. You know, so I just felt like, you know, I got to choose something that I can really dive into to really get into the, um, the, the core of, of who I am and whose I am. And, uh, and you know, I, I went to all sorts of, of uh, communities. Uh, uh, one of my favorite was Quaker communities. So if you haven't done Quaker yet... You got to do that. We did, yeah. Did you? Now, warning, there's different branches of Quakers as well. Yes. So, um, yeah, so I went to the Quaker uh, churches in Vermont. I lived in Vermont at the time. So that's very different Quakerism than in Battleground, where I did my last appointment. Uh, Anyway, so... I uh, explored all these different faith communities. I lived in Burlington, Vermont, and quite frankly, there were a lot more choices in Christianity than there were anywhere else. Um, I don't even think that there was a mosque in, uh, in Burlington at the time. So, um, and then I got walloped by this Jesus thing, and that's another story. And so I figured, ah, well, I got walloped, so let's try and figure this one out. So, and but, uh, would I be willing to to you know move into a, a different faith? I, I think I do. I call myself I call myself a uh, Buddhist Christian agnostic. That's kind of where my head's at, and uh, I'm very interested in other religions, particularly how we're the same.
0: Our friend Noah who unfortunately cannot be here but I'm sure he he'd love this interview especially um he like he he's, he's he's has a very um uh universal view of religion basically he believes that you know Zoroaster is is a, is a prophet because of the influence of Zoroastrianism in uh Judaism obviously it was kind of the, the nexus between pre-exilic Judaism and post-exilic uh, Judaism uh, specifically second temple Judaism I should say um, but he also views like um he if Muhammad is a prophet, he um, he basically identifies as Muslim. He also identifies as, as Christian as well, which is uh, very fascinating. And he's, he does, like, Islamic prayers on every Friday. Uh, he has a kufi. Um, and uh, he—but um, he also attends a church as well. So he has a very uh, uh, um, kind of tapestry uh, view of, of religion.
1: Very cool. Very cool.
0: And— um, uh, basically well yeah, what I wanted to ask was uh, obviously I was looking and I saw there there were some robes there which I'm assuming are being those would be used for um the, for the for the liturgy um so for for the um for the service so so how does a typical Methodist service look and what, what's the liturgy like how how does the how does the how does the music ministry uh, work and what, what's the structure of the whole uh, event it, it
1: it can really vary it can really vary um I, you know I I I feel like I need to be a little bit more creative. Um, Well, first of all, I'm a very creative person, so um, I try and do funky things. Um, There are some people who, you know, stick to the Book of Worship, and they have to do this, and they have to do this, and they have to do this, and uh, that's just not my jam. You know, I just, um, I want to draw people in, and I I want people to get caught up in, in uh, in the love of God, whatever way I can do that. Yeah, I wear a robe now. Um, I know I didn't always wear a robe. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Um, the robe kind of uh, gives folks a, a that, that there's a, a sense of authority, and that's why I don't like wearing it. Because you know, I I don't deserve that authority because I'm no different from anybody else. But at the same time, particularly the uh, older generation, they need their pastor to wear a robe. And if that's how, if they can only listen to me if I wear a robe, then you know my my most important thing is that they listen and be a part of a dialogue. Um, And so, if if it's too distracting for me to not wear a robe, then I consider that. So. So uh, we
2: end every interview with this question. Um, like, for example, when we interviewed the Latter-day Saints, we would ask, what does it mean to be a blank? Like, what does it mean to be a Buddhist? What does it mean to be a Christian? So now we're going to ask that question to you. What does it mean to be uh, a
1: Methodist? I think that I fell into Methodism for, um, for two reasons. One is that I really appreciate the quadrilateral I appreciate that um, Scripture is taken seriously. Um, I appreciate that tradition, and when I think of tradition, I think of the early church. Um, that tradition is core of, of, of um, learning, learning more about God and, and being a child of God and working on our faith that way. Um, reason is super important to me because we have brains. We've been given brains. We, you know, it would, it would be crazy if we're given a brain and then we don't use it just because I don't know, we, we have to be sheep and we have to follow what somebody says. You know, I, I don't, I don't buy it. And, um, I love doubt. Doubt is awesome because when you doubt you end up searching and when you search you learn and and if you don't doubt then you just kind of you know say what somebody else says and not even think about it and y- you have y- you have to understand what you're saying you know I asked a, a class one one time you know Tell me what redemption means in you know in one paragraph. Tell me what redemption means, and none nobody could do it. so a uh, reason you have to understand what it is that you're talking rather than just saying these words that mean nothing um, and experiences is huge. Um, it's because of my experiences that have led me to this place um, without my experiences yeah i i would really n- not work on a Uh, a journey of spiritual formation. I might just work on a journey of understanding God, just a much more secular perspective. But the experience has really uh, created a kind of uh, journey of faith, a pilgrimage of faith. I just got back from the Camino de Santiago, um, where we walked 500 uh, miles across northern Spain. And it was a pivotal point of understanding why do I do what I do and clearly I do what I do with so many other people and everybody, it's called the way, everybody has their own way and, uh, and that's so, just so beautiful so Methodism, oh the second reason why I fell into Methodism and again I, you know can change it would be okay with me to change especially with this whole social justice issue of homosexuality um grace that is primary to our denomination grace 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 and um it's there's one of my books by maddox is called responsible grace and i feel like you don't even have to read the book the title is enough we respond to grace and uh and so grace and the quadrilateral is is what keeps me coming back and you know Um, drawing on not only Jesus' teachings, but um, John Wesley's teachings.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Bogley, for lending us your time uh, for this absolutely fascinating interview on uh, the United Methodist uh, Church. Um, That being said, I'm Xavier. I'm Baylin. I'm Rylan. I'm Susan. And uh, you have been listening to The Godcast. Uh, That being said, stay tuned for planned future episodes.